Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about autism stories. On today's episode, Brandon Stump joins me to discuss being the first openly queer and autistic law professor to publish a law review article, getting accommodations as a professor, and the future of disability law. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Brandon, thanks so much for joining me here today on Autism Stories. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I wanted to start out by learning where does your story in the autistic community begin? I mean, I guess I would answer this question probably differently than maybe it's intended because I would say that my autistic journey began as a little kid, being completely isolated and different. But being born in 1985. I'm coming of age at a time when there is no concept that people like me exist. And so I'm missed by diagnosis. And the rest of my journey goes from there. So I would say really, you know, for me, autism is like a full body lifelong experience. It's just something I had words for way later in life. My autistic journey itself has been one that is almost lacked traditional community. I've always been a person who, because I didn't have a diagnosis until I was in my early 30s, I developed community with other marginalized people because they were the people who were the closest to feeling how I felt internally for reasons I couldn't necessarily explain. So I always felt different and I always felt othered and I always felt the way that I viewed the world just so fundamentally different from other people that I gravitated to communities of color. In particular, you know, I think I have had an experience where most of my life journey has been buoyed and honestly, at times saved by black people in general, and especially like black academics who stepped in even when I didn't know what to call myself and were able to give me a space to find a way forward. So I think I've had a very, I definitely did not have an autistic life in the sense that I had an autistic community. And I still don't really have one. I work at a place where like, I'm the only one. I am a person that just tries to find community where I can in the best ways that I can. And I would love to meet more people that are like me, but that's not always easy, especially at the workplace because there are so many impediments to entry that it's hard to meet people like you if you've made it. So that's the answer to that. And it is a wonderful answer. Now, uh, you are the first openly queer and autistic law professor to publish a law review article. So I, I read where you said that you felt that this is sad because it shows that 
many law students are unwilling to open about their autism or about being openly disabled. So what have you experienced or seen with some of your students when they were open about their disability? I've been teaching now for about, gosh, I think I'm going, this is about my seventh year of teaching. I can tell you already, I can see a difference in the way that students see themselves conceptually when it comes to ideas of disabilities and things that you would perceive traditionally as like maybe impediments or barriers that they would that would keep them out of a system. So when I started teaching, the idea that a student had a disability was something that they didn't want anyone to know. They didn't want people to know that they might need an accommodation. And if they did need an accommodation, they certainly didn't want people to know what the disability was. That it was very hush-hush, like this idea that we have to keep it hidden because it's a bad thing. In seven years' time, that journey has shifted so much for students that I have today. I mean, I teach at Cleveland State University Law School, and our law school, I am the advisor to a student organization. It's the school's first ever disability and non-disability coalition organization at the university highlighting the issue that like disability is part of identity that it's not just like a diagnosis that it is a fundamental piece of who people are and that it impacts who they are at school at the workplace and that they are seeking community so i can tell you i mean just in seven years that has been a radical shift i can remember i once asked a student that i had who was struggling greatly this was when i had first started teaching if they had considered that maybe they had a disability. And then the reason I asked them was, it was very clear to me at that point that without real and meaningful help and assistance, they were not going to be okay. That the things that we were doing traditionally were not going to meet them where they were. And so I'm approaching this as, at the time, I had had an autism diagnosis by then, and I'm thinking, this will help you. This is the greatest chance you're gonna have to getting the help you need. And this student, I mean, you would have thought I asked them if they were a serial killer. I mean, this like this idea that I was asking them about a disability and that I saw it potentially in them, that they felt a sense of like, they were ashamed. There was a sense of disgrace. Now that has radically shifted with the students I have now who openly will come to me because I am so open about myself and they'll talk about their disability. They'll ask me questions. They'll ask me things about the workplace. They'll ask me about challenges I've had. That did not happen. When I first started teaching, actually, I had a student, when I disclosed, apologized to me and said, when I said I was autistic, they said, I'm sorry. And I was like, at the time, I was so caught off guard because I'm like, well, I'm not, so I don't think you should have to worry about it. You know, if I'm okay, you can be okay. I like myself. But we've definitely shifted um, already. Now, as autistic people, we are constantly deciding whether to disclose in our lives. So in so many different situations. So what went into the decision for you to let people know about your queer and autistic identities? I think because, so if you've made it to the point of, if you've made it to 30, and you have had various issues in your professional and personal life. And most of them are in some way or another connected to 
your neurology, right? And the fact that you have a divergence of some kind. You don't know that at that point until you finally do. Once you've made it that far in life that you get, for me, it was this feeling that I don't think there was one person that I was encountering that within a f- maybe a few days of knowing me in some capacity, didn't think that there was something going on with me that was different than what was happening with them. And this idea that I could mask in a permanent way, that to me already was like, I knew I couldn't do that. So I was like faced with this dilemma, right? Do I disclose this thing about myself that I know other people have negative feelings about and that they judge? Or do I just let them judge me and think that they just dislike me personally? I personally am one of those people that's like, I would rather, you know, I'll put all the cards on the table. I'm not going to be able to hide it. So if you're going to judge me and you're going to discriminate against me or you're going to make things hard for me, you're going to do that whether I tell you or not. And the difference is if I tell you who I am and then you choose to do that to me, that says something about you and it says nothing about me. And it also, you know, from a legal perspective, it opens me up to protections I might not otherwise have because I have said exactly who I am. There's no guessing. It's not, I'm just weird, right? I don't like him because he doesn't fit in. It's, I've told you exactly who I am. You know, I think people think that they can hide a lot about themselves. And I think partly that's a cultural thing. We live in a society that tells people that, well, other people can't see things about us. And it's true they can't see certain things. Nobody ever knows everything about you. But your brain is part of who you are. So when you go anywhere, you all you are is a walking skin suit that is doing what your brain is telling you to do, right? So you're just a walking reflection of all the things that are happening up here. And people are going to see those things. You're not going to hide them because you are yourself and your brain is that way. And you're not going to be able to make your brain not that way. And so instead of living in this idea that no one is going to see these things, I just am a person who's like, maybe radical self-love is a much better approach to living because I really do like myself. Do I like every moment of being autistic? No, but most neurotypicals also, by the way, if you haven't noticed, the whole world's built for them and they're still miserable. So they're not happy being themselves either all the time, right? Like no one, no one is universally happy all the time. So I think that for me, it's like, how do I navigate that? And I navigate that through, I just tell you who I am. Because I also know if I tell you who I am, I can now go to you for help because I know I won't be able to navigate it all alone. You know, that's what you get though when you're 30 and you get a diagnosis. You've seen all the times you have not been successful or that you have failed in some capacity or you didn't meet the moment. And so for me, it's a way to also get the help I know I will need. I think when talking about academia um, in regards to accommodations, I almost always hear about this in reference to students. However, I'd like to know what have been accommodations you've needed to be the best law professor you can be? I'm lucky because academia, more than other careers, has a much more flexibility. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what I need more than anything is flexibility. So I need the ability to, if it is a low moment for me and I cannot rally, I need to be able to shift class 
to being online. It doesn't mean I'm going to use that all the time. In fact, I don't. I normally try to really strategically plan my entire calendar year where I have time in and time out of the classroom in the way that I teach. So either I'm going to teach remotely and I'm going to teach in person and it's going to be hybrid, but I try to plan it around what I know my weaknesses are and what I know are my weak moments. Now that has taken thousands and thousands of dollars of therapy and a lot of lived experiences and failures to understand how to map those things out. So that is not an easy thing to do. I just happen to be a person who has been privileged enough and lucky enough to be able to work on myself and figure those things out. So I don't always have to directly ask for what we would think of as typical accommodations in part because I, I'm a person who with enough flexibility because I'm in charge of my own classroom, I can accommodate myself a lot. Now, what I need accommodations for though, are sometimes little things. Like it's very challenging for me to teach during the week and then also go to a law faculty meeting in person. They're extremely draining. They have the lights on. There are all these people in the room. Everybody's looking at you. It smells funny. All the things I don't like about living in the world are happening at one point and it's called work. So in those moments, I want an accommodation and I've asked for one. I do have one currently. So one is I attend my faculty meetings, but I attend them remotely. So I'm still participating. I'm just not having all the being overloaded. For me, it's all about trade-offs. And so if I have an employer who can understand that my life is about trade-offs and that those trade-offs are not about laziness, then I don't really need a lot of traditional accommodations. You just have to respect and believe me. And I, you know, I try to think that by this point in my career, I've shown people that I actually do the things to say I'm going to do and I do them well. And so you really can trust that if I'm saying I'm having a bad moment, in fact, I probably am. Other people probably are too, by the way, they're just not telling you. I'm telling you I'm having a bad moment and I need to take a break for a minute. And that might just be, I'm going to teach online for this week, or this is a, this is a week where we're going to hold all of our student meetings online because it's too hard. The in-person element of anything that's interpersonal is so incredibly draining to me. And not, I know other people are like, well, I get tired too. I promise you don't because you wouldn't go out in the evening afterward. Like that's not really an option for me after I do those things. There's nothing left. So I'm lucky in the sense that I have a job with a tremendous amount of flexibility and that by and large, I think that my employer and the people that I work for directly and work with understand that when I am asking for something, I'm asking because I do need it. I'm not asking because there's this idea that people with disabilities always just want something special. The special thing I normally want is to be left alone <laughs> to do my job. So I don't know if that's a special thing, <laughs> but that's, I'm lucky. I'm very lucky in that respect. Now, storytelling is really important to me. And I think it's such an important way that we as humans learn. And I, I loved learning um, that you use storytelling in the classes that you teach. So what specific stories do you like to use to help your law students to learn important concepts or information? One of the things I do is I actually design my entire 
course. So I teach legal research and writing, which is the required first year law class. It's the entire year long. You have the same group of students and you're teaching them basically everything about the research and writing process when it comes to legal issues. And I structure my entire class around two works of fiction because I use one book a semester and each semester's problems because it's problem-based learning. So in law school, you're often doing like simulations where it's like, if this hypothetical event happened and these are the facts of it, what would be the legal answers? So what I do is in place of that hypothetical, I use fiction and I use fiction for two reasons. I use it because number one, it helps me diversify the classroom. I can use experiences in fiction that are, have diverse perspectives on the world. They can be race, they can be class, they can be gender, they can be sexuality. They can highlight in detail, not just, you know, a surface a hypothetical written by a professor that is like client X is black and client X is Asian. It's not one of those situations. It's much more than surface level. In fiction, you're getting these three-dimensional portraits of who these characters are and what their motivations are. And so students, especially students who don't come from diverse backgrounds are getting to for the very first time, really consider people in a different way than they've ever had to consider them before. They're like whole, it's a holistic picture of a person. The second reason I do it though, is because I think that students attach meaning to story. We know that like, if we have a story and we have a narrative that people are more likely to both remember things and attach meaning to it because it's a specific thing that they're able to then take and pull principles from rather than the inverse, which most people aren't good at, right? Most people are not good at taking a general and making it specific. The texts that I use are, and I, I'm open to change, but in the past year I've used, there was a book called uh, Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. It was recently made into a movie. He's a horror author. And it's about a same-sex couple and their adopted daughter going on vacation in the woods and very bad things happen. <laughs> and so the entire first year's assignments are built around this very bad set of circumstances from a legal perspective. So I ask them targeted legal questions involving the characters in the book. How would we answer this? What are the answers? And then they have to research them. And I also, in the spring, I use Mystic River by... Yeah. Dennis Lehane. And one of the reasons that I do that is because if that's a, first of all, these are both books that keep people's attention. They're very high octane. They're very suspenseful. There's an element of mystery, but that book also does a great job of highlighting the experience of a sexual abuse survivor and people who are working class and working poor and how the law interacts and intersects with their lives. And so all of their questions for the entire year are built around those two books. And I can tell you, having taught other things, that students have had a different reaction when they have read the books than when they have problems that I have created. It's not that they don't learn from those problems that I've created, but I think that their memory is so significantly improved when they have a book because they invested in it. I mean, they had to read it and they had to read it to do the thing. And so they like the way that they invest in their education has changed. I can never finish a book, but I did see Mystic River. Fantastic movie. <laughs> it is a great movie. And I tell students that I'm always like, 
you can watch the movie. You just have to actually finish the book. <laughs> then you can watch the movie. Another reason why I was not destined for law school. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you know, we talked earlier that, uh, or I mentioned earlier that you, uh, about you publishing a law review article. And the law review article you wrote is titled Allowing Autistic Academics the Freedom to be Autistic, the ADA and a Neurodiverse Future in Pennsylvania and Beyond. In the article, you asked the question whether an autistic professor who is maybe odd or different can be fired for being disabled. What does the law say? What do previous law cases actually say about this? So this is a complex question for a lot of reasons. And I'm going to give you a law professor answer, which is everything that you just asked depends on a whole bunch of different things. So the first thing I would say is, it depends on what we mean in this case by being disabled or being autistic, right? The law requires, in order for you to be protected under the ADA or any like corollary state law, what you would have to do, one or two things have to happen. You either had to have disclosed to your employer that you had this disability and that you needed an accommodation for it so that they're on notice. Or the employer has to regard you as being somebody with that disability. That means, now that broadens it out a bit, right? Because if it's all about what they regard and what they see, then that's based on their concept of disability. But here's the problem for things like autism. I do autism as my identity. I believe that my disability and I are inseparable. They're just the same exact thing. There is no Brandon and then autism Brandon. It's not Clark Kent and Superman. It's I'm in the tights all the time, right? Like that's how I see my life. To me, if you were to discriminate against me based on my personality and based on how you perceived my personality, I would argue that that is disability discrimination if you have negative feelings about parts of my personality. Because I would say that those things are inseparable. All those concepts we have of quirkiness and like the autistic sometimes stereotypes that run the gamut, but like the idea that you're not necessarily typical in the things that you're interested in or the way that you make eye contact or the fact that maybe you don't make small talk at the office or that you don't like to go to group events. All of those things can be perceived as, well, that's just part of them at the workplace not fitting in. I would argue though, all of those are making up a composite picture of a person with a disability, right? We just as a society have not called it that, that our personalities are so intertwined with disability that when you are discriminated against a person because you don't like their personality, in my opinion, you are discriminating against that person because of their disability. That's my perspective on the law and how it should be. The law as it is is a little more complicated. And part of that's also because we don't have a tremendous amount of case law on these issues. You know, it's incredibly expensive to bring a case. If you are going to file an employment action, so if you file with the EEOC, that's where you have to begin. And then if you get an attorney to represent you after that happens, you know, through that, or through that entire process, our entire system is based on capitalism. 
And, and the idea is that you are always monetarily damaged. So if you lose your job, it's all about getting damages for you, right? Well, if you don't make a lot of money, it might not be worth an attorney's time to represent you. Not always because they're callous and don't care, but because they also have to pay their bills and they have to pay for their insurance and they have to pay their employees. There are so many moving parts to that that when we have a system that's based on capitalism, it is hard to then have cases that go up, get tried, and then in order to have a written record of it, we would have to have appellate review, which costs even more money because that means we've already gone through a trial. Your attorney has probably never gotten paid at this point. If you're the disabled person, they're still representing you. Now they're going up on appeal. They might have to bring in other attorneys now because they don't do appellate work. And then you have to have a written decision. So basically, you just have these giant gaps in the law on issues of employment, especially around disability. And part of that is because, unfortunately, I think so many people, even outside of the bringing grievances, you know, they don't, it's so hard for people that are disabled, particularly, I think, autistic people, it's so hard to get and stay employed given your various differences and how those differences interact with society's concepts of what it is supposed to be like to be at work. And if you have a very inflexible society and people that are judging you are perceiving you based on those concepts, it's really hard. So you both don't have a lot of people making it to those places where they would be fired to bring the case. The case would be extremely expensive and very difficult to bring. And then there's the other question of if you haven't disclosed yourself and your employer only perceived you as weird, legally, that probably doesn't even meet the criteria of a disability discrimination case. I think that should change, especially when we know that so many people's personalities, out, even outside of autism, you know, when it comes, look at every personality disorder in the DSM. I mean, all of those are based on the way that you interact with the world. Well, that's what we call personality. And that is also, an art, all of those are archetypes for certain types of disabilities. I would argue that they are all disability discrimination. The law is not there. Someday I would like for it to be. Like maybe it's not the worst thing for people to have to work with people that they think are weirdos. Like I'm sure they'll survive. You know, maybe we could get to that point. We're not there yet. I think we're a long way from that. And I think we're also just in a place too with employment issues with people that are autistic. I, you know, how many times do you read stories about employers in, in sciences and maths are reaching out to autistic people and they're, they're hiring them to come work on computers. And I think that we don't even account for the fact that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other autistic people who are really terrible at science and math, who are doing other things, but we're not even thinking about them being employed full time. I think it's just so many moving pieces at once. My hope is that someday that we account for those things in terms of the way that we protect people at the workplace, but we're not there. Math, I'm good to a certain point. Science, I'm absolutely the worst. <laughs> mm math is like see numbers to me are so theoretical and mean nothing like they're placeholders right and that's really what they are 
but that doesn't work for me. It's a placeholder, but for what? It like means nothing. So it's, I understand mathematical concepts. Like I understand the theory in practice. I am like very much, you know, Jesus take the wheel type of moment. It's scary. Every time I have to do a tip when I've gone to a restaurant or a bar, (laughs) that alone is enough to cause a nervous breakdown. When you wrote your Law Review article in 2019, uh, you wrote about envisioning a future where artistic professors and other neurodivergent academics assist in changing the scope of disability law so there are better outcomes in employment for autistics. Where do you think we are in 2023 with this vision? (laughs) I think that that, obviously I was very visionary. Uh, because we're not even close. We are in a weird place post-pandemic. I I say post in loose quotes. I think that we, as a society, we made a bunch of advancements really quickly with the pandemic that incorporated and allowed people who had traditionally felt excluded from the workplace in general, not just in the academy, uh, to have a meaningful work life where they could actually participate. And then the pandemic ended because of the idea of people craving normalcy so badly and being unable to adapt to the fact that things had significantly changed and add in capitalism and people wanting people back in places to support all of the various things that all of our systems are built on. And so I think what happened was now there's this other push that's like everybody must be at everything in person all the time. So it's like a pendulum that swang really far one way and then just within a few years swung really far back all the other way. So in that sense, you know, that doesn't give me a lot of hope because what we showed was we had the technology and the capability. I mean, I don't know if anybody else remembers it, but I don't remember any of these Fortune 500 companies just tanking during the pandemic because of remote work and like, I don't remember the tales of woe of Zuckerberg and like Elon Musk crying from their ivory towers because people just weren't working. That wasn't happening. (laughs) So people were not going under. We've shown we have the ability to do things, but I think that we are so reluctant to accept that that can be just as real as being in person. And we have, I think the culture has such a hard time. It's like, well, If we let these two people do this remotely, what if the other people want to do it remotely occasionally? And it's like, the truth is most people like being around other people and in person. When people want flexibility, it's normally because society is very demanding and there's no money for things like childcare and there's no support and there's no system for people to be able to work full time and have any type of a life, right? That's what that struggle is but they're identifying it as the wrong thing. So in that sense, I don't have a lot of hope at the moment, but I do have hope in that I do think that that the idea of disability as diversity is beginning to catch on in ways that it hasn't in my career to this point. I was once at an event and I, it was a diversity event. It was a conference. And it was not a disability diversity. It was a racial diversity event. And I, I, I asked the question of, you know, what do you do when you're trying to form community, but you are the community? When I am at work, I am the only 
I am the only person that is like me. There is nobody that can even remotely fit. We, I might, you know, we might have a Venn diagram where we're overlapping in some places, and that's great. And I don't dismiss those things, and those things are real. But there's no other autistic person, and there's no other autistic queer person, and that's a very isolating thing. And the ABA, for example, disability is not one of the criteria when they consider diversity in employment and in hiring for law schools. And so I think that that has to change. When people start looking at disability as a fundamental part of who a person is, as much so as that person's race or that person's gender identity or that person's sexuality, when we can take that into account and we can make in our society says yes, that and that's not a bad thing, that who they are isn't something that needs to be overcome. Who they are is something that is who they are. They have to live and work with it. Just like everybody else has to live and work with whatever they've been built and whoever they are, whoever they were born as. When we can get to that point, I think we will make significant improvements, but we're not there yet. There are people like me, I say it all the time at work. I mean, I'm always reminding people that disability is diversity. I say it to my law students. I say it to colleagues. I say it when you know we're talking about hiring. I just make the point of explaining like there's a lot to diversity that we don't always talk about. Even sexuality for the ABA, for example, it's still not one of the important factors for the American Bar Association when they are considering diversity. It's almost entirely race and gender. And I think what that does is it's it's got good motives, right? Because I work in a profession that is like been historically white, historically male, and historically gross for a very long period of its history. And now, you know, it's trying to acknowledge that it's got all these problems, and it does. It has tons of racial problems in the academy, tons. And then it has tons of gender issues. But I don't think that that means that you only have to exclude other issues. And part of it I don't think is intentional. I truly don't think that until recently, the world even considered that there were people like me. I don't think people even sat around and thought that there were, that people with disabilities looked like me. That just wasn't on anyone's radar. I think that we had a culture that looked at disabilities as something that made people somewhat broken and that they kept kind of hidden unless they absolutely couldn't and that they probably couldn't achieve much and that they had a different lot in life. And I think what's happening now is people are saying like, well, there might be lots of things that are holding me back at times, but you also should have to make room for me. I'm kind of great. Like I do exist and I have a right to be seen and I have a right to like be part of everything else that everybody else is. But I think that that is radically new. If you ever saw disabled people at work at all, it was almost always a physical disability or something that happened to a person that changed their life later on, like an accident or a surgery gone wrong or a stroke, something that happened with age. And I think or things like MS even, things that might come about later in life. It's not that they're not real and that they don't drastically change a person's life, 
and that they're not part of diversity because they are. But I don't think people consider people like me. So I don't always think, I think a lot of autistic activists think a lot of things are intentional. I think things are intentional when you tell somebody everything, when they're like, what do you need? What do you need to be a success and to be happy at work and to feel included? And you tell them, okay? And then they're like, we heard you. And then four years later, nothing that you talked about ever happened. That's intentional. The fact that they don't always know that you exist. I mean, hell, I didn't know I existed until I was 31. Right? Like, I didn't have a concept of me. I knew that I was different. So I don't hold that against other people. But I do hold against people when I tell you who I am and you don't care. And so I think the more people that we can convince that I'm not a person, I don't want to blend in. I don't want to fit in. I want to be myself. I am not asking for assimilation. I am asking (laughs) that you just make space for me and you let me exist alongside you. I think the more people who can keep saying these things and to get into places that they've historically not been in, that will lead to a lot of change. But we do have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. And we have a lot of people that two competing schools of thought. I mean, you have very young people who believe that disability is real and part of who they are. And you have a lot of older people that are like, you shouldn't talk about your weaknesses. And I'm like, if I didn't talk about my weaknesses, I wouldn't be able to talk at all because that's just who I am, right? Like, so I think we have these two schools competing. And I think ultimately the perspective of a lot of younger people will win out but it's got a road to go. I mean, they don't have any power in the systems that we're in. Yeah, I love what you said about not fitting in. I don't I don't want to fit in. I don't want to have small talk, uh, you know, for the most part. <laughs> I'm not big on, I don't need to have eye contact with you. I don't need to feel good about going to a restaurant and music being played in the background and all these people talking and hearing the kitchen and people walk in and out of the door and hearing conversations from other tables. No, I never want to feel good about that. So. And I think it's okay to also like, from the employer's perspective, what I would urge employers of is, we want our, you know, employers really want their employees to socialize. They are really big on that. And the truth is, maybe 90% of your employees really want that. It's not even that I don't want it. It is that it will come at a cost. And I would rather use my energy and use my strengths for the things that aren't destroying me. (laughs) So like I would rather use them to teach or to do research or to help a student that's going through a problem. I would rather use my energy there than to be like, yes, I would love to go out to this crowded uh, social hour where there are lots of people talking about things that I'm not interested in for at least an hour in a room that's not air conditioned properly. And when I have 7,000 other things that are on my mind that I am now having to stop doing, like that doesn't sound like, you know, I think a lot of times the autistic experience at work is basically begging someone to let you do your job the way that you could do it best. And it's like, isn't, I mean, it's so funny to me that that is how many most autistic people I know that struggle at work, it is like them basically like, if you let me come in a half hour later, 
I would stay a half hour later every single day. And they're like, I don't know if we can do that. <laughs> and you're like, what are you even losing in these scenarios? In all of these scenarios, it's a person that's asking you to just meet them where they are. And I, I do think that maybe as millennials get older, that flexibility in the workplace will be more prevalent. Because the truth is, Doug, everything I'm talking about here, we don't even need ADA accommodations to fix this. We need like empathy. You know, you need human empathy and universal design and the belief that people are trying and doing their best. And then when you have, ev now, when you have evidence that that's not happening, that's a different story. Right. Right. When you have evidence that a person who is asking to do things differently is not in fact doing them or not doing them in a way that is actually the way that they need to be done. Well, then that's, is called like a person not doing their job. But that's not the same as a person who's asking to do things differently. And I think that so often employers see those things as the same thing. And that is the blessing of academia. I mean, I do, outside of having set teaching times, I have a tremendous amount of flexibility in doing my job on my terms, on my schedule, the way that works for me. I could not be luckier. I mean, I am a person who most of my professional life before I got into academia was very much like let's walk through a field of landmines and then not know why we keep hitting them and so now i have this i am just tremendously lucky as a person i didn't think i would be able to ever be a person who could be fully integrated in the ways that were meaningful to me in a workplace because that had never been my experience and you really can i mean that's the other thing i think my life is an example of when people let somebody who is working work the way that they work, that person can really do things at work in a meaningful way and that helps their employer. There is some hope. I think maybe it's just going to take time, lots of time. Now, Brandon, I really appreciated getting the chance to know you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Doug. I really appreciate it. And I think you're doing great work. I think highlighting people's stories is wonderful because the truth is people feel so isolated in their experiences and you're really not. And I think that the autistic experience is so similar to the queer experience. And if you're lucky like me, you're both. And that is that you are born into families of people that don't always match you, right? Like instead of being, if I were black and I were born to a black family, I would have a whole group of people who had my experience. But all of my experiences have been very isolative. They are the story of a person who is out of sync with the people around them for whatever reason. But I think that that for all the people that listen to this story and to listen to the other podcasts that you've done, you know, I, what I hope is people take away that there are people out there that are very much like you and who are struggling with things that you have genuinely struggled with and that you will make it and that you can make it, and you can reach out to them and you can ask for their advice. It's, you really are allowed to. You can Google me and find my email. But in general, just don't give up because you really aren't alone. You just feel like it a lot. Thanks so much to Brandon for the conversation. Here at Autism Personal Coach, our clients are the experts. Our coaches are the guides. 
The majority of supports for autistics are not helpful. They try to fix us, not support us. That's why many are confused when we say our clients are the experts, experts of their lived experience. Our clients are the experts for what has worked for them and about the things they need and want in their lives. Our coaches first listen to our clients, then ask thoughtful questions, offer resources, and strategize with our clients so they can get what they need to thrive. Would you want a guide in your life to coach you to get the things that you desire? If so, then visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.